0: So in 1993, there was this monumental moment in history. The world was introduced to magic eye illusions. Known formally as auto stereograms, magic eye illusions are a swirl of colored and textured dots or pictures that hide a 3D image inside. This image can only be observed when the viewer unfocuses their vision. Do y'all remember these? I mean, they were everywhere in the early 90s, weren't they? Well, they look like this, okay? By the way, your worship bulletin cover today is a magic eye illusion, so you can turn it sideways and see the image, or maybe you can't see the image. I'll tell you at the end of the sermon what the image is. And that's what makes the magic eye equal parts amazing and frustrating. When viewed properly, the 2D image reveals a hidden image that appears to be floating in 3D. But if you can't see the image, well, it's very easy to feel like you're going insane, staring at this illusion that everybody else can see, But not you cannot see. So um, with this 90s craze, um, to find this secret image, people often adopted a signature magic eye stance. Bent forward, hands on hips, staring dumbfounded at the visual static and chaos in front of them. The other people who crowded around because there were always other people who could see it. They crowded around and passed along tips like cross your eyes, or no, squint, or try relaxing your eyes, or bring it close to your eyes and then slowly pull it away. And if you were lucky, if you're one of the lucky ones, click, you'd see it and suddenly the image would appear. I was never good at this. Heather was really good, she could see these things. And I would stare for hours and get migraines and need new glasses, but I I can do them now. But man, I struggled in the 90s when everybody was enjoying this, I hated it, it was misery. Well, the life of a disciple is kind of like a magic eye illusion. Our lives often look like this chaotic mess of troubles and sorrow and suffering. And we're like David in Psalm 31. As we saw last week, our hearts are like a dryer. Thoughts and feelings and emotions tumbling on high heat all inside. Meanwhile, we're desperately trying to see what God is up to. So we stare at the magic eye illusion that is our life. And we try to see what God is up to, what is he doing? Why is all this happening to me? And that's David in Psalm 31. David is just like us. His heart is all over the place in Psalm 31. And what he'd say to us today is something like this. You can trust God further than you can see him. You can trust God further than you can see him. That's actually a phrase that comes from Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible, where he said this, The better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail and they have nothing else to trust to. And those who know him to be a God of infinite grace and goodness will trust him, though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that. Though the performance be deferred and intermediate providences seem to contradict it. Those who know him to be the father of spirits And an everlasting father will trust him with their souls as their main care and trust in him at all times, even to the end. And that's what David does in Psalm 31. Turn there in your Bibles now. David's creature confidences have failed. His enemies are mocking him on social media. Even his friends are thinking that he's starting to lose it. So David feels like he's lost everything. But even though David's heart is all over the place, he still trusts the Lord. And that's all he really needs. Trust in Yahweh. And that's all you need. Psalm 31, look at verse 14 and hear the word of the Lord. But I trust in you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Oh Yahweh, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. You have to read Psalm 31 with a lot of exclamation points. I mentioned this in the 1030 service last week. Sorry, they get all the good stuff, okay? As my mind thinks of more things after I preach, I'm like, so I told them, you need to learn to add exclamation points on the end of your prayers. Don't just say, save me, oh God. You are mighty. You are strong. You're supposed to say, save me, oh God. You are mighty. You are strong. Your Christian life might change if you add exclamation points on the end of your prayers. Try it this week. Okay, that was for free for the 1030 service last week. It's free for you now. Moving on. David now begins to recalibrate his heart in Psalm 31. Recall what we saw last week. David told us in verses one through 13, all that was happening in his life. His life was a mess. There were people in Israel worshiping idols. On top of that, David is afflicted, he's distressed, he's been crying an ocean, his eyes are bloodshot from all the weeping, his nose is raw from using so many Kleenex, and his soul is tired. Have you been there before where your soul is tired? Where not only your body aches like David in Psalm 31, but where your soul actually hurts, your, your spirit, your soul, your heart, aches as we saw last week David feels his suffering in years have you ever felt your suffering in years not just months but years he says his entire life has spent in sorrow for years he has just been sighing and his body was breaking down he's weak he's exhausted his has enemies on the outside giving him grief. He's getting death threats. His enemies are slandering him on Facebook. And then, as if all that wasn't bad enough, even some of his friends, his close friends are like, have you seen David lately? Yikes, he's a hot mess. David feels lost and he's lost all joy. It's as if he has lost everything. But now in verse 14, He starts to unfold all that he has in Christ, all that God is for him. In fact, it's emphatic in the Hebrew. The Hebrew reads, but I on you, I trust. There's the emphasis, but I on you, I trust. This verse is often translated as in you, I trust. And that's fine, but it's the Hebrew preposition, all, which means on or upon. On you, I trust. In other words, David is saying, I'm leaning on you, Yahweh. I've collapsed on you. I'm trusting on you, Lord. So there's this sense of resting, collapsing on the arms, just collapsing on the Lord, just collapsing into his arms. But I. On you, I trust. I like that. Do you trust on Jesus? Not just trust in Jesus for salvation, but do you trust on him? Do you lean on him as you suffer? Do you lean on him as your heart is spinning and tumbling like a dryer? Do you collapse? Do you trust on him? And then notice it's very personal for David too. This is not some academic exercise. This is not a paper he's writing or a Psalm, a song he's writing for a seminary class. This is real. It's personal. You are my God. You're my God. And I love how clunky the Hebrew is in verse 14. It reads literally, I say, God of me, you. I like that too. It's kind of like caveman talk. God of me, you. David doesn't drag out his thoughts in some long-winded, elegant manner like the Apostle Paul does in the New Testament with these sentences that just go on and on and on with comma, 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 and finally you get a period. David keeps it short and sweet here. God of me, you. That's all he needs. Just a short and sweet reminder that Yahweh is his God. And if Yahweh is your God, Christian, then you can go through a lot and still say you trust on him, you trust in him. You can go through a lot in your life and still be standing on your feet in a wide open place when you can say, God of me, you. It's just two words in Hebrew, four in English, and it's kind of cave but it just might be the most important thing you can say out loud today or any time of your life, God of me, you. Commenting on this phrase, Charles Spurgeon said, thou art my God has more sweetness in it than any other utterance which human speech can frame. God of me, you, may sound like caveman talk, but it's the sweetest phrase that you can utter. Can you say that today? Is Jesus your God? Do you know him? Not just know about him, but do you know him intimately, personally? Can you tell somebody what he's like? If they ask you, what is Jesus like? Could you tell them what he is like? Have you tasted of the sweetness of those words? God of me, you? So David's life feels like a magic eye illusion. He can't see that all that God is doing, but he trusts in, he trusts on Yahweh. He knows that his life, his times are in Yahweh's hand. So when David says in verse 14, my times are in your hand, that's just the Old Testament way of saying that God is in control. David is just speaking here about God's providence, his sovereignty. What is God's providence? Well, here are a few quotes that I think David would agree with. Augustus Hopkins Strong said, Providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. This is our God. His attention is concentrated everywhere. Rub that into your pores. His attention is concentrated on you too, and your life and everything that's going on. Charles Spurgeon said, you want always to see through providence, do you not? You never will, I assure you, honor God by trusting him. We want to know what God is doing in our lives, don't we? Like the National Enquirer, inquiring minds wanna know. We wanna know what God is doing. What are you doing here, God? What's, what's, why is this happening in my life? I didn't ask for this. What is this mess that I'm in? What are you doing? What are you up to? We want to see through providence, don't we? To the other side to be like, ah, that's why God is doing. That's what he's doing. That's why this is happening. We want to know that all that God is up to in our lives, but guess what? We never will. We might get glimpses But we'll never be able to see through all of God's providence in this life. Now, when we spend eternity on the new earth with Jesus, I think he'll take each of us aside individually and say, let me tell you everything that I was doing in your life. Here's why that was happening. Here's why that was happening. And we'll just fall down and worship him. So we're not gonna be able to see through providence completely in this life. We might get glimpses Usually those are on the backside of going through something. We realize, oh, this is what God was doing. But in the middle of it, when your heart is tumbling like a dryer, you want to see through providence, see what God's doing, and many times you can't. You have no idea. So we might as well do the one thing that will bring us the peace that we are looking for as our hearts are tumbling like dryers, as our lives are like a magic light. illusion, the thing we do is we honor God by trusting him. And that's where David is now. He's trusting in Yahweh's providence. I love how Ralph Davis describes providence. He says, providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. That's not all of it, but some of it. When I use providence here, I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people And his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. God's providence is wonderful and strange and mysterious and unguessable. And that means that there will be times, many times in your life, when you cannot see what God is doing, when you cannot see what God is up to, and you'll have to say, like David, my times are in your hand. David knows that his life is in the hand of a wonderful, strange, mysterious, and unguessable God. Is that how you would describe Jesus? I asked you, do you know him? Could you explain that to someone? You can tell them he's wonderful and strange and mysterious and unguessable. You can, you should describe Jesus because this is what he's like, right? Among many, amongst many other things. And because David's times are in this kind of God's hand, David prays that God would deliver him from the hands of his enemies. My times are in your hand, he says, but deliver me from their hands. You see, there's something about coming to grips with God's sovereignty, coming to grips with the providence of God that should cause you to pray, should cause me to pray. This is David's robust theology of providence taking him by the hand and leading him to pray. Theology should do that, you know. Theology, doctrine, what we believe should lead us to pray. Providence and and God's sovereignty, him being in control of everything, should not make you think, well, then I don't need to pray. Instead, you should pray because God is sovereign, because God is in control of everything. If we have a robust understanding of providence, and it does not lead us to pray, then something is off, something is broken. If our theology does not lead us to pray, we're doing theology wrong. If reading systematic theology books does not lead you to pray, then you're doing your systematic theology wrong. Providence should lead us to pray something like this. My times are in your hand, now deliver me from their hands. Do some of that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable ways that you have of ruling your world and sustaining me and do it, Jesus, over, under, around, through, and in spite of the most common stuff in my life and do it even against the bias of my own will. But please understand who this God of providence is that we and David prayed to. I asked you if you knew him, do you know him? He's gracious, he's kind, he extends favor to sinners, to rebels. That's what David means in verse 16 when he speaks of Yahweh's face shining on him. The face was the organ of favor in the ancient Near East. If someone's face was turned away from you, then there was something wrong, it was rejection. But if someone's face was turned towards you, then they were being gracious to you. That's why the priestly benediction in number six says this, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David probably has this number six blessing in mind here because he heard it at church every week on the Sabbath from a priest blessing him. And now David wants to experience Yahweh's favor. He wants to experience Yahweh's steadfast love. He wants that peace of mind and heart in the middle of all that he is suffering. We all want that, don't we? But then David also wants Yahweh to shut up his enemies. In verses 17 and 18, David says, basically he wants God to tape their mouths shut because they're slandering him on Facebook. David can't even get on Facebook anymore. It's just just, his feed, all the stuff they're saying about him keeps popping up in his feed. In fact, David wants these people dead. David wants Yahweh to buy his enemies one way tickets to Sheol, the Hebrew word for the grave. Buy them one way tickets to the grave. Why? Because that'll shut them up, right? There's something about being dead that kind of makes you shut up. And that's what David wants for his enemies. I want them dead and I want them to shut up. And now with his enemies gone. David can now focus on his future. Of course, David can't see too far into the future. He's like us, but he does know what awaits him in the future, loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of God's goodness. And isn't that what you expect from Jesus? I asked you, do you know him? Do you expect loads and loads of goodness from Jesus? You should. Look at verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. Not crankiness, by the way, did you notice that? That's how some people view Jesus. Oh, how abundant is your crankiness. Therefore I should be miserable. No, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear or are in awe of you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. I love that. We're like David sometimes, we feel like we're cut off from the Lord's sight. like you've abandoned me, oh, you don't care. And God listens to our pleas for mercy and our cries for help. When we say like, you've abandoned me, he's like, okay, I'm gonna show up and help you. He doesn't walk away when we accuse him of things like, I am cut off from your sight, he draws in closer. So with his eyes off his enemies, David now turns to the goodness of God. He says that Yahweh has stored up these treasure houses of goodness. I love that image, like Willy Wonka, right? Like it's just everywhere, there's just goodness everywhere. A chocolate goodness river, it's just everywhere. But notice that his goodness doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay in these storehouses. David says that Yahweh works it out for those who take refuge in him. In the presence of other people. Verse 19 then is like an Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. Perhaps Paul had Psalm 31.19 in his mind when he told the Roman church this in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. David is telling us that Jesus has stockpiles of goodness just waiting to pour into our lives. His goodness stored up treasures of his goodness that he can surprise us with whenever he wants. And doesn't he do that? Doesn't Jesus surprise you sometimes with some of his goodness? Sometimes you're just going about your day, you're not even thinking about Jesus at all. You didn't get up in the morning and have your quiet time. You didn't read your Bible, you didn't pray. You really hadn't thought about Jesus that much. And then like a water balloon that you don't see coming, Jesus just kind of splats you with some of his goodness. I love that about him. It's unmerited favors. Like, Who are we gonna hit today? And that's why when your life feels like a magic eye illusion, you can trust God further than you can see Him. The God you trust has abundant goodness stored up for you and He works it out in your magic eye illusion life even when you can't see what He's doing. When all you see is chaos and visual static, Jesus is busy working out his goodness for you. Why? Because he's good. I asked you, do you know him? Do you know that about him? He's good. Why do we resist that? Why are we allergic to his goodness? He's good. He really is good. I'm sorry if you've had preachers tell you that. He's not good. I'm sorry if your image of Jesus is that he's just cranky all the time. He's good. You can try to argue with Psalm 31 if you want, but you're not gonna win that battle. He is good. Understand this, Jesus oozes goodness. He oozes kindness. Jesus oozes grace. And some Christians think Jesus is this uptight miser, always frowning, never happy, stingy, tight-fisted with his grace, always frustrated because his children are always acting up. And we are, aren't we? But he's not always frustrated that we're always acting up. Nope, that's not Jesus. Not according to Psalm 31. Jesus, according to Psalm 31, has storehouses of goodness that he can dump out on his always acting up children. And that he can work out in their lives, Romans 8, 28 style. All things work together for good. Everything that's tumbling around in that heart of yours right now will work together for good for you. Because Jesus is good. But that's not how Jesus is usually preached. Typically, Jesus is presented as this uptight, stingy miser who never smiles. All he knows is frowns and frustrations. That's sad, y'all. Is that your image of Jesus? Do you know him? He's not like that. That's not Jesus. Steve Brown said, the Christian faith says that the sovereign creator, ruler, and sustainer of all that is, loves his creatures with such passion that he can't have a party if they aren't there. Heaven knows we have enough sour Christians. Genuine Christians ought to laugh a lot. One of the sure signs of God's presence in the midst of his people is the laughter of his people. Listen, a sour Jesus preached will produce a sour people. A miserable, always frustrated, angry, uptight Jesus preached will produce a miserable, angry, uptight people. Is that how you picture Jesus? That he loves us with such a passion that he can't have a party if we aren't there? You're supposed to read verses 19 to 22 and smile. You're supposed to read verses 19 and 22 and laugh. You're supposed to read verses 19 to 22 and lose all of your sourpuss attitude. How is that possible? How is that possible even when you suffer like David? We're supposed to read verses 19 to 22 and be reminded that Jesus has stored up goodness for you and Jesus works out that goodness in your life and that Jesus is your refuge that you run to for safety and that Jesus hides you in the cover of his presence and that Jesus stores you in his shelter and Jesus wondrously shows his love for you and Jesus hears your pleas for mercy when you're in a pickle and Jesus helps you. That's why there shouldn't be any sour puss Christians. That's why you should laugh more. Because Jesus does all of that Psalm 31 verses 19 to 22 goodness for you. And he does it all the time. All week long, even if you didn't see it. Even if your life feels like a magic eye illusion right now, and all you can see is chaos and visual static. All week long, Jesus was doing all of that for you in ways that you can't even imagine. Wonderful ways, mysterious ways, strange ways, unguessable ways. Many times that's how Jesus works out his stored up goodness in our lives. He does it in wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable ways. And that's why David will say what he says next. If Jesus is this good to his people, if he can't have a party unless we show up, then how should we respond? How do you respond to a God who stores up goodness and then works it out in every nook and cranny of your life. Well, David tells you how to respond. Look at verse 23. Love Yahweh, all you His saints. Yahweh preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for Yahweh. How do you respond to a God like Jesus? You love Him. You just love him, you're just in awe of him. You just say, I can't believe you're this good to me. I don't deserve this. You love him, and you love him because you are one of his saints, Christian. I shared this a few weeks ago, but the ESV translate this Hebrew word in verse 23 as saints, but this is the Hebrew word for beloved, those people that Yahweh loves. The people that Yahweh loves with all of his heart. It's actually a plural form of the Hebrew word hesed, which is God's covenant loyal love or his steadfast love is how it's often translated. The beloved of God are those who are on the receiving end of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. People who are always acting up, but always on the receiving end of his steadfast love. Here's what it means to be one of God's beloved. The love and affection that God the Father has for his son Jesus, he now has for us. Because we are in union with Christ, trusting in him by faith. We are now credited with his righteousness. We are now adopted into his family and now God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. Wow, that's why. You love him. To be called beloved means that God loves you as if you were his only child. I mean, imagine that. Let that sink in. That's how God loves you, Christian, because we've been united to Christ by his spirit. God loves us as much as he loves Jesus, and he loves each one of us individually as if we were his only child. And when you rub that truth into your pores, it should cause you to love Him back, to be in awe of His grace, mesmerized, flabbergasted, and then be empowered by His grace to live for Him, to live for His glory, to honor Him. And we also love Him because he preserves us just like the passage we read in Jude. He keeps us. We are wrapped in the love of God the Father forever. That's another reason why we love him. We're wrapped up in God's love and we can kick and scream and squiggle all we want, but we will not get out of his love. He preserves us, David tells us in verse 23. Listen, if any of us ever make it out of any kind of trial and hardship, we know it's all due to God and not us, right? You know why it's all due to God? I'm going to hurt your feelings, okay? We're soft. We're really soft, aren't we? Little sufferings come our way, little inconveniences evade our lives, and we just unravel, don't we? We're undone. We're like, oh, the refrigerator broke down again, ugh. Oh, no, and now that, where's my toothbrush? Oh, right. Well, maybe you should unravel if you lose your toothbrush. But we crumble, don't we? Little inconveniences, little sufferings, not big, weighty, heavy stuff, even small things. And we're like, oh. Why? Because we really are soft, aren't we? It's only due to His grace that any of us make it through any kind of suffering, even the smaller sufferings that really aren't that big. He keeps us, he preserves us. When's the last time you thank God for preserving you? If it wasn't for him, we'd be done. That's how weak we are. That's how incapable we are of holding it together. We're a hot mess, not just David, we are too. I love what Ray Ortland said, If we are distracted from real-time connection with the mercies of God so that our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet wandering, we are only one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. We do not have to give ourselves to raw evil to end up there. We only have to unguard our hearts. We only have to stop being vigilant. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. But if we are receiving by faith the outpouring of Christ's love and constant supply from his throne of grace, we cannot lose our way. We're all just five minutes away from total disaster. <laughs> Did you know that? That's the stark reality. Just get in a roundabout. You're a few seconds away from ramming someone, maybe, uh, uh, what is it, when you manslaughter. I mean, in a roundabout, you were just going about your day and suddenly you've rammed into someone and maybe caused their death. You are literally seconds away from total disaster and so am I. That is the stark reality. We're one click away from ruining our lives, one text away, one phone call away, one word away, one kiss away. Because we are sinners, that's who we are. Yes, we are in Christ, we are redeemed, we are righteous, we are blameless in God's eyes, but we are still sinners. We sin and we can seriously mess up our lives by sin. Hear me out, God's grace will forgive and cover any sin that you commit, but his grace may not remove the consequences you can seriously mess up your life. I can seriously mess up my life through sin. So people who hear people preachers talk about grace so much like, Oh, you don't take sin so seriously. Yeah, I do. We do. We should because we can mess our lives up even though we are freely and absolutely forgiven. If we disconnect from real-time connection with Jesus and we let our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet start wandering, then we are one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. That's sobering. Sin is so sobering because it can absolutely destroy your life, destroy your family, destroy this church, destroy this city, this country. I love what Jacob Smith says. We are all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of us are already on day two. For some of us here today, we're three days away from becoming a tabloid headline, and some of us might already be on day two. That's sobering. So let me say to you today, don't let your heart drift. You're one click away. I'm one click away, one text away, one kiss away, one look away. So look to Jesus, just keep your eyes on Jesus. That's why it matters if you know him. When you look to Jesus, you see just a cranky old miser who's uptight. You see one who loves you, gives you grace. Keep your eyes on Jesus on the real Jesus and rehearse the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself and see the beauty of Jesus Christ as he lives and dies for you. And don't lose your awe. Don't lose your wonder. Just pray, God, don't let me lose my awe because I'll lose it. You know I will. You know how I'm so distracted. Please don't let me lose my awe. Don't let me wreck my life. Preserve me. And you might, need to, you might even need to pray, don't let me be an idiot. Okay? That's a great prayer to pray. Jesus, don't let me be an idiot. I mean, because I am, but don't keep me from being worse of an idiot than I am. Why pray like that? Because we are just five minutes away from total disaster, we are three days in a row from becoming a tabloid headline maybe we're already on day two and that's David in Psalm 31 that's why he ends it with these words look at verse 23 again be strong and let your heart take courage all you who wait for Yahweh David encourages the Saints all God's beloved children to be strong and take heart why because of all that God is for his children we can be strong we can take heart when we look to him when we know him and the more we know him the more we trust him And then that's what will enable you to wait for him as you suffer. Why does David tell us to be strong and take heart? Here's why, because waiting is hard, isn't it? He's having to wait. Waiting might be the hardest thing for a Christian to do. Not evangelism, not faithful, quiet times. Waiting might be the hardest thing for a Christian to do. It's the hardest part of suffering and undergoing difficult seasons in life. And it's hard because it's located in the dimension of time. It's located in seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. Suffering and sorrow live in the dimension of time. They live in clocks and calendars. And scripture's one word answer to suffering is always wait. Now, if you're like me, we want instant relief, don't we? From suffering, pain, heartache. I want instant relief, instant answers, instant restoration, instant reconciliation, instant, instant, instant. But that's not how this thing works because usually the answer is wait. And sometime, sometimes you have to wait until Jesus comes back when he makes everything sad come untrue. Sometimes you spend your whole life waiting. About something but while we wait we learn to know him and the more we know him the more we trust him and then the more we are empowered to wait for him so get to know him get to know him more and more and you'll trust him more and more read your Bible pray attend church get involved in fellowship if you're not involved in a Sunday school class or small group get involved here come to sunday night read good books if you want a good book about who jesus is find me after the service i would love to give you one Uh, dane ortland's book uh, gentle and lowly if you want to if you don't have that book and you haven't read it and you want to know what jesus is like what is his heart like at his core What, what is he like see me after the service i'll give you a free book remember you can trust god further than you can see him And if you're like me, trusting God is hard, which is why I find myself praying, I trust, help my distrust. Like that man in Mark's gospel who said, I believe, help my unbelief. I trust you, but help my distrust of you. So that means that we can trust Jesus right now in this moment, all the way to the end of our lives, even though we can't see that far into the future, even though we don't have a picture of what our future holds, even though we don't know what's going to happen to us this week. What is our part, what do we do? You can strip it down to two words, trust Jesus. That's our part, trust Jesus. That's the Christian life right there, that's discipleship, learning anew to trust Jesus every second of every day. Matthew Henry said you can trust God when creature confidences fail, you can trust his word, even though the performance is deferred and intermediate providences seem to contradict the promise even if everything around you contradicts God's word, you can still trust God's word. And you can trust God because he gave his son up for you to die for your sins. You can trust the God who does something like that, don't you think? A God who gave up his one and only son for your sin and rebellion, you can trust a God like that. Okay, before we pray, the magic eye illusion on the worship bulletin is a, pair of glasses. It almost looks like a pair of 3D glasses. I hope you can see it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Uh, Lord, we're so squiggly and squirmy in your arms, restless, irritable. We want answers yesterday. It's hard for us to trust you, not because of you. We know your character. We know your word. We know who you are, but our hearts, God, We're just prone to wonder, prone to live in fear, prone to be riddled with anxiety. And we just ask you to help us. Psalm 31 says you help us, and we're asking you to help us, Jesus. Give us peace, we pray. Help us to honor you by trusting you. And don't let us lose our awe. In your name we pray, amen.